Well, good morning, everyone. This morning, we're going to be looking at chapters 8 and 9 as a group. These two chapters being taken as a unit rather than two different chapters. Sometimes when we look at the chapter divisions in the Bible, we think that there are transitions or they don't go together. Some kind of way we make separations when we see chapters. And so this was not as it was in the original Greek. So Matthew has just presented to us the first of five sermons, remember, in chapters 5 to 7 of Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount. He's now going to give illustration to what Jesus has been saying. Because you remember as he concluded his concluding remarks in the last chapter, in chapter 7, were that the people were astonished at Jesus' authority. Remember, to speak and to teach, not as the scribes, but teaching and preaching within the authority of himself. But I say to you, which was an absolutely different way of teaching. And so in chapters 8 and 9, Matthew's going to give us examples of the authority of Jesus And then, of course, we'll continue on into chapter 10, which will be another block of teaching or sermon. And then there will be another chapter, two of illustrations, and then the long sermon again. And this is how Matthew is is building the picture, putting the picture together of Jesus as God's Messiah, the one who's come into the world as promised by God to be the Savior of Israel, God's people, God's uh, Israel's king. Father, thank you so much for ministering to us this morning. Father, we pray as we always do, speak to us, open our hearts, our ears, our minds to hear, to understand, to receive, to practice your word by your spirit. Father, all of it is because of your spirit's motivational power in us. Father, we thank you that even as saved men and women, even as those who have been brought into the kingdom through the blood of Christ. Father, you are still not requiring us to carry the burden of obedience. But Father, you have put the spirit of obedience in our hearts. And now you are are calling us to walk with the spirit, abide in the spirit, be led by your spirit to cooperate to hear what your spirit says, to yield to your spirit's work. Father, that we may please you in all things. For, Father, truly, only the work of the spirit in us gives you glory. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. So, in chapters 8 and 9, we're going to see that Moses, uh, Moses, Matthew is going to present 10 miracles, 10 miracles of Jesus' authority. And as we look at these miracles, we can look at and, and see that what Jesus is doing, he is delivering his people from enslavement to Satan. Each miracle, each work of authority of Jesus is another example of God delivering his people from the hand of Satan, for the control of Satan. And it's reminiscent of what? Of Moses, you remember, when the Lord used Moses to bring forth ten miracles, ten plagues. 
for the purpose of delivering Israel from the rule of Pharaoh. And so you see the context here. Matthew is building his story to be an illustration of what was pictured by Moses and in the plagues of Moses. Now in these two chapters, he's going to show us Jesus is the fulfillment of the Moses of Moses' ministry. Jesus is the fulfillment of that which God promised from the beginning, pictured in Moses, and now brings to fulfillment in the Lord Jesus himself. And so, as we look at these two chapters, I want us to look at um, this particular verse. 1 John 3, 8, the second part of the verse, it says, For the Son of God has appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. And so we're going to see in these two chapters examples of Jesus one at a time, one, two, three, all the way through number 10, destroying the works of the devil. And so if you would just keep that particular verse in mind as if you would an umbrella verse as we go through this and every one of the miracles to show you us, this is another work of Jesus destroying the works of the devil. All of these works, remember, anticipating and being and culminating and being the result of what work that destroyed the work of the devil? What work of Jesus destroyed the work of the devil? Which one work? The cross. Remember, at the cross, Jesus destroyed the work of the devil by dying our death so that Satan's authority over us through the use of death, remember 2.14 of Hebrews, is taken away. And Satan no longer has authority over us because Jesus has paid the curse of the broken law, death. And Satan had held that over our heads all our lives. But Jesus goes to the cross, pays that price, and for his people, we are freed from that penalty. And not only from that penalty, but from Satan's ability to have any more authority over us. Let me say it clearly. Satan has absolutely no more authority over any and every believer whatsoever and forever. Amen? Amen. He has no authority. The only thing Satan has is deception, lies, and his power in us is through the fallenness and the weakness of our flesh. And the only way he can have any activity or ability in us is to the extent that we surrender and give it to him, correct? So any and every time I sin in whatever category and for whatever reason, I am submitting to Satan's leadership in my life. Put it down this way, believers. Satan cannot make us sin. We no longer have to practice purposeful sin. And so the next time you're tempted, don't start wailing and moaning and all that. Turn to your adversary. Face him. James 4, 7. Submit, therefore, to God, right? Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. And when you're tempted, say to Satan, you cannot make 
me sin. I will not feel, think, do whatever that. Be gone. That's who we are in Christ. That's who we are in Christ. Why? God has given us that authority to exercise authority over the one who used to have authority in us by the authority that has been given to us in the risen Son of God. And so Matthew is going to take these two chapters and divide them into three sections, if you would. There's going to be a group of three teaching, I'm sorry, three miracles and a teaching, another set of three miracles and a teaching, and then another set of four miracles. Actually, it's three and one inside the last, so it's really four miracles. And then after that, we'll go into the next chapter, which is his next sermon in chapter, uh, um, whatever it is, I've forgotten it, where are we? 10. We're going to chapter 10, which will be the next sermon. So let's start this morning. Chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. Again, when we look at this, these are examples of 1 John 3, 8. For the Son of God has appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the enemy. Verses 1 through 4. And when Jesus came down from the mountain, remember he had just been teaching the Sermon on the Mount. Great crowds followed him, and behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. What's going on here? In Leviticus 13, and if you read Leviticus 13, as in any part of Leviticus, it is over and over and over again about the issues of sin and the categories of cleanness and and what the sacrifices are required. And it's kind of tedious reading if you are reading it just for information. But if you are reading as a revelation of the person and work of Christ and the result of that work, it becomes a great and glorious understanding. In Leviticus 13, leprosy is just one of a group of skin diseases and sometimes it is the word that is used for any one of these diseases a work of skin uh, the group of skin diseases which rendered the person unclean or unfit for the presence of God remember Leviticus is the legislation that God gives to his people so that they may be able to enter the tabernacle which has been built. At the end of Exodus chapter 40, the tabernacle is constructed. Everything is finished. But in about verse 38, I think it is, or somewhere around there, not even Moses can enter the tabernacle. Now that the tabernacle has been completed, now the Lord has to institute the legislation which will allow the people to come into the tabernacle to dwell with him, if you would, through the mediation of the high priest so that the tabernacle will become not only God's dwelling, but it will become the tent of meeting, the place in which God and his people fellowship. But before you can come in, we must look at the legislation, the Levitical legislation, to see how that happens. And that's what Leviticus is all about, telling us how God mediates the forgiveness of our sin through the sacrificial offering by the high priest. All that's given in Leviticus. And so, 
It's unfit. We leprosy made a person unfit. They're unclean. Leviticus thirteen forty six. He shall remain the person with leprosy or the skin disease, whatever it is, shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. Now, why, why, why? Well, the issue here has to do with the representation of the presence of death. Skin diseases represented that which was the work of death, that which was, which was the activity of the fall in their lives. And remember, God is the God of life. And in order to come into the presence of God, to dwell into fellowship, we cannot, God will not allow us to be dragging into his presence those issues of death. Anything that pertains to death must first be cleansed away, dealt with, before a person can be made fit for the presence and activity and the fellowship, rather, of a God of life. Because life and death don't go together. And so skin diseases represent the presence of death. Therefore, death has to be cleansed. It has to be removed for such a man to enter into the presence of God who is life. So what does a man say? Lord, if, if you will, you can make me clean. He recognizes Jesus' lordship. He recognizes that Jesus is not just another man. Now, does he recognize Jesus is the son of God come from the Father and the Trinity? I don't think so. But he knows about Jesus, enough about Jesus to know this one is from God and he can cleanse me. He is working the works of God. There's something about this man. I don't understand it all, but there's something that if I go to him, he can make me clean. So he says, if you would, he calls him Lord. He recognizes to some extent Jesus' authority and sovereignty and ability to make him heal, make him well and to cleanse him. So what does Jesus do? Look at verse 23. Jesus stretches out his hands and he touches him. Now, if anything that was forbidden in the Levitical law was you don't touch a person with leprosy. You stay away. Remember, lepers would come into the community and would have to call out, unclean, unclean, unclean. And the best way to scatter a crowd in those days was to have somebody say, look, lepers. People were leaving. It was a crowd-scattering issue. No one got around the leper because they were unclean. And to be unclean was not just an issue of something wrong with my skin, but they knew that we could not participate in the fellowship of God if we're unclean. This was a very deep, deep religious spiritual issue for these people, and it should have been. And Jesus touches him, and he says, I will be clean, and immediately the leprosy cleansed. You see, in touching the lepers, in touching this man, Jesus shows that he has authority over anything which prevents us from coming into the presence of God. In touching this leper, Jesus is saying, I have authority to clean. I have authority to cleanse. I have authority to remove any and every obstacle that keeps a person Make, makes a person unfit for the presence of God. Why does Jesus heal the man from that which kept him from having life? Why? Why does he do it? Because you see, Jesus in John 10.10, 10, remember? The enemy comes, but what? To kill, steal, and destroy. But I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. 
Jesus' whole purpose, his entire purpose for coming into the world was to give life to his people who were under the curse of death. I am the resurrection and I am the life. Remember what he says. And so his entire purpose was to give life. And this is why he touches this man, to show that his authority in giving life was greater than Satan's authority of keeping this man under the penalty and the chains of death. So when he touches this man to make him clean, Jesus is showing. The people may not see this, but Satan sees it. By touching this man and making him clean, Jesus is saying, Satan, your ability to keep my people in the chains of death is over. I am here as the one who is life, the creator, and I've come to bring back my people from the cauldrons of death into my presence of life. Verse 4, and Jesus said to him, say nothing, don't say anything. Why? Aren't we supposed to testify to the goodness of God? Doesn't the Bible say testify? Let the redeemed what? Say so. Yes, we are. But you see, there's something more important. There's something that comes first. The only way this man was declared to be ritually clean was to be going was by the testimony of a priest. The priest pronounces him clean. And this was part of the old law. And Jesus, who is still under the old law, says, go and show yourself to the priest. Do what the law says. In order to be declared ceremonial clean, only the priest can declare you clean. Do you hear it? Only the priest can declare us as clean. Who is our priest? Only Jesus can make us clean, and only Jesus declares us clean before the presence of God the Father. Only Jesus declares us clean. So why don't tell? Why not? Jesus did not want the man to testify before he had obeyed. Obedience. Obey first. Only then was he ready to testify of the Lord's cleansing work. Testify. But allow the cleansing work to be manifested and to be declared by the priest in your heart and to establish you in the word and then begin to testify of Christ. Verses 5 to 13, the second miracle. And when Jesus ended Capernaum, a centurion came forward. Now, remember, who is a centurion? Not only a Roman, but he's a Gentile. Who is a Gentile? An outcast. One who is not of the commonwealth of Israel. Not one who is part of the blessing of God. These people are outside of the realm, if you would, or the citizenship of the kingdom of God. It's a centurion. He's just not a Roman. He's a centurion. He's a sinner. Put it in the vernacular of the day of Israelites. He's a sinner. He's rejected by God. And it came to Jesus appealing to him. Lord, again, he recognizes Jesus' ability and authority. This is the centurion. And to a centurion who is a Roman soldier, only Caesar should be what? Lord. And yet he addresses a Galilean rabbi as Lord. Only Caesar is Lord. Can you imagine what was at stake in this man's business, his future, his occupation, even his life, to call anyone else Lord? He's a Roman, um, what do you call it, uh, 
he's a lieutenant and so on. He's, he's an officer. He's an officer. He should know better. There's a great risk here. And he calls him Lord. And so he says, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And Jesus said to him, I'll come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. Sometimes, believers, we don't have to go to someone and lay hands on them. Sometimes we can just speak the word if that's how the Holy Spirit leads us. For I, too, am a man under authority with soldiers unto me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. Now, when Jesus heard this, he marveled. And he said to those who followed him, truly, I tell you, no one in Israel Nowhere in the, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. The faith of this man. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. While the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the out of darkness. In other words, to the sons of those who are the kingdom of Satan. Those who assume they're in the kingdom of God. are going to be thrown into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion Jesus says, go. Let it be done for you as you have believed. And the centurion servant was healed at that very moment. What's going on? You see, because the centurion was a Gentile, he was religiously unclean. The other man was ritually unclean. He was an Israel, ritually Israelite, ritually unclean. This is a Gentile, and he is religiously unclean. And he's not a member of God's household, and he had no ability to experience the life of God. However, when he comes to Jesus anyway and asks Jesus to heal his servant... No telling what this man believed. No telling how many gods this man believed in. But there's something about Jesus that draws him. The Holy Spirit is drawing this man to the Lord Jesus. He sees Jesus. He hears Jesus. And he sees and hears in this man someone absolutely unique. Now, you know what the question is for me? For me. I'll say it. This is the question for me. Or others in the world, maybe even in a church, but in the world, seeing something so unique and attractive in me that the Holy Spirit will draw them to Jesus through me. You know, sometimes I'll get in one of my typical things and I'm out doing something, whatever, and say something or make a comment or whatever. And then I realize later, well, that person won't be drawn to Jesus through me, will he? Who wants to come to Jesus if this is the Jesus that you're representing? And so I, 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 I labor over this. I have to be very careful over this. And I, sometimes the Holy Spirit is more successful in me than in other times. We are the only, and you've heard this before, Jesus, the many people may ever know. What are they seeing and hearing in us? Are they seeing and hearing the goodness and mercy and the love of God? Or are they seeing a cranky, obnoxious, complaining, bitter, whatever? What kind of Jesus are they seeing in us? 
See, Matthew is showing us in this encounter, I think, at least four amazing truths in this encounter. At least four amazing, I think, in this encounter. The first truth is Jesus' willingness to minister to one who is not a member of the community of God. How many of us have ever thought, now come on, let's think about it. How many of us have ever thought, well, that person's a Catholic and God won't minister? Come on. How many of us have ever thought, well, that person goes to the Catholic Church, he or she can't be saved? Right? Well, that person's not even a nominal believer. They can't come to God and begin to expect things. But here's a Gentile. Not only one who is not an Israelite, but one who is part of a system that has conquered and will be destroying Israel's hope. I mean, this guy's an enemy. Can you imagine if we were conquered by the Russians and Russians were everywhere, the soldiers were everywhere? And one of the pastors of the church who were approached by a Russian general and asked him to go minister something at the <gasps> fraternized. <gasps> How can you do that? How can you do that? See, this we have to be very careful. <clears throat> those who voted for Hillary or those who voted for Donald. We have to be careful not to allow these things of the earth to in any way divide us or cause us to be critical of one another. Jesus is willing to minister to this man. Now, what does that say to you about your Gentileness before you were saved? If we have any attitude about others, what about us? How many of us were Gentiles at one time? Yes. Was Jesus willing to minister to any of us before we were saved? Did any of us receive any mercy from God before we were saved? Any at all? Yes. In fact, every day, in every way, before we were saved, God was active mercifully in us. And yet sometimes we fail to see this, don't we? We begin to think, well, the grace of God has come to us and has been merciful to us when I was saved and thereafter. But before, no. God kept you by mercy and grace for the day of your salvation. And the difference was He made it evident to you in saving us as he continues his mercy and grace to us based on what? The reconciling work of Jesus on the cross. So God's mercy is to all of us at all times. The moment I was conceived... God's mercy began to be placed and active upon my life. So it just didn't start on the day that I was born again in the kingdom of God. And then I began to, that's the day I began to understand and know about the mercy of God that had always been 
a part of my life and had governed my life, moving me into the kingdom and continues to do so. So he, he, he communicates. He, he, he's willing to go. He's in agreement with the, to heal the servant. Second truth, the centurion's humility in asking Jesus for help. As I just said, who he was. And yet he asks this carpenter's son, this nobody. He's a nobody. And yet God works in this man's heart by the spirit to say, go ask him. Humility to ask. How many of us have the humility to share needs and prayer requests? You know, there have been several over the years and something will be going on and we'll say, well, would you like us to pray about it? Put on the prayer. No, no, I, I don't want that. to. Let's not allow the enemy from keeping us from experiencing the mercy and grace of God by not asking. God wants us to ask. Now, does that mean if we don't ask, we don't receive? No. But let's ask. Why? Because God is worthy. The centurion asks. The third amazing truth is that the centurion's faith in recognizing Jesus' authority. What did he recognize? I also am a man under authority. Well, what does that mean? Did Jesus walk around with a big badge saying, I'm God's man, I'm God's man, I'm in authority, I have authority, I have authority. What does he recognize about Jesus, Billy, that he can say, I also, like you, I'm under authority, just like I see you under authority. You see, he sees that Jesus is under authority. I also am a man under authority. Does he say that? Do you see what he says? So he recognizes that Jesus is under authority. What does that mean? This man knows by the Spirit, this is a revelation of the Holy Spirit, that Jesus could not do the works he did nor speak the way he did in his own authority, but is submitted to the greater authority of God. He knew that. He knew that the ministry and the person of Christ exemplified a man who was under the authority of God. He saw that. The Holy Spirit showed it to him. And he saw that when Jesus is doing his great works of miracles or when Jesus is teaching the way he did, Jesus is showing compassion. What is this? This is a man who is being led by the Spirit of God under the authority of God to do the works of God. And he recognized it. I also, like you, am a man who is under authority. And when I say to my servants, go, they go. When I say do this, they do it, etc. He saw that. Jesus is amazed. The fourth truth. He is amazed at the reaction to the, he is, he is amazed with the man's faith. Jesus is amazed at the faith of this centurion who uses the occasion to tell his disciples that many Gentiles will come from the east and from the west to enter the kingdom of God by faith, as opposed to those who presume that they are in the kingdom of God and have great confidence in themselves. You remember the Pharisees, that they are the people of God. Because they are the sons of Abraham. 
And the opposite is true of this man. What does that remind me of? It reminds me of Matthew 5, verse 3. Remember what Matthew 5, verse 3 says? Blessed are the poor in spirit. What? For theirs is the kingdom of God. Theirs is the kingdom of God. Here's a man, this centurion, who is poor in spirit. I can just... I don't know. I didn't. I wasn't there, and I didn't see the movie. But I wonder how many Pharisees and scribes and Sadducees, and maybe even the average person, bristled, bristled at the fact that Jesus not only took time to talk to this man, but also was willing to go to his house. And then the most audacious thing is he actually healed the servant of this man. How much God is different than we are, isn't he? No wonder he's called holy, unique, and other than. The third miracle, verses 14 to 17. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her. And she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons. And he cast out the spirits with the word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illness and bore our diseases. Once again, it's one of these fulfillment passages. Matthew shows what Jesus does and where Jesus goes. And he associates this and connects this with fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies that the Messiah will be doing these kinds of things. When you see these kinds of activities... When you hear this kind of teaching, this is evidence that Jesus is Israel's Messiah. Israel's king has come to her. This is what Matthew is portraying. This is what Matthew is presenting. This is what Matthew is proving to us through the validation of Jesus' life through the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures. As the author of life, remember, Jesus is the author of life. He has authority over death by healing Peter's mother-in-law. Again, another issue here. She is inflicted with some illness that possibly could threaten her life. Now, we don't know why she had a fever. What is a fever? Is a fever anything in and of itself? Anything in and of itself is a fever a problem. What is the problem with fevers? It shows that what? There's some kind of infection or something going wrong in the body. And if you ignore a fever, you could wind up deceased. Isn't that correct? So when you have a fever, you certainly get it down or whatever. And if it goes away, maybe, you know, the Lord heal you, you. You got all right and you went on. But if a fever persists, what happens? You know that something is going on in your body that you don't want. There is a work of death. There is a work of opposition. There is a work in you that is causing you to be declining in health. That's what Jesus is doing here. He touches the mother-in-law again to say, I have authority over this. Because I am the Lord of life. And my authority as the Lord of life has been given to me because I will obey 
God in all my ways and, and I will go to the cross and pay the full price of the penalty of death over my people. And so Jesus is preempting, if you would, or is showing us what will happen. So in every one of these miracles, we see intimations or hints of the cross. In every one of these miracles, we see intimations or hints of the cross. Jesus could never have done this apart from the cross. He could never have done this apart from the cross. And every one of them spoke of the cross. And every one of them were the result of the work that he would do at the cross. These are preliminary or picture works that show that the cross is coming. And that everything that Jesus teaches and everything he does is a result of and is fulfilled where? At the cross. Jesus not only demonstrates his authority over the effects of death by ministering to a woman, he shows that the marginalized are welcome into his kingdom. A woman. A woman. I mean, there was a saying there is still, you know, what is it, a goim? You know, a woman is worse than a, whatever, the worst of the Gentiles. It was amazing how they put down women. And yet this was not the way the law of Moses had been given. But the people in those days, women were marginalized. They were put down. They were thought of as less than. And here comes this rabbi. And he begins to relate to women and talk to women and minister to women in a way that they had not received and experienced before. And so by touching her, he cares for the women. And in fact, you remember in, where is it? Which gospel is it where the woman 16 years bent over and Jesus touches her and he says, my daughter, my daughter. Remember in John chapter 4, the woman at the well. Remember, she's an outcast. She's a woman of, you know, of the ladies of, of, of the town. She's an outcast. She's going to the well at noon. You don't draw water at noon. And Jesus talks to her. He's, oh, how can you be a Jew and you're talking to me? You see, he's raising up the outcasts and the downcasts. He's raising them up to the place where God wants them. There should be no such thing in the church as gradations of acceptability. Everybody in the church, whether your title is pastor or whether your title is brand new believer just 10 seconds ago or four seconds or one second ago, we are all absolutely equal before God, accepted and loved equally in the Father's presence. Amen? No such thing as this gradations. Different roles, but no difference in standing and acceptability. That evening, many people came to Jesus as a result and were healed. And then the teaching, verses 18 to 22. And now when Jesus saw a great crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. Remember? And the scribe came up to him and said, teacher, I'll follow you wherever you want to go. He's seen all this. Hey, I want to be a disciple. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds have ne- uh, of the air have nests, but the Son of Man nowhere, has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go to bury my father. And Jesus said, follow me. Let the dead bury the dead. What we have here are two people coming to Jesus. One has encountered the cost. I want to be a disciple. I want to, be, I want to experience these things. And Jesus said, wait a minute. Wait, 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 wait. Hold on. There's a cost to this. You must know that there is a cost to discipleship. 
You see, Jesus, the one who desires to follow Jesus, should remember that, like Jesus, this world is no, has no place for us. We have no place to lay our heads in this world. And as believers, how many of us still struggle with this when things are not going right and we're having difficulty or whatever, and we begin to moan and groan and cry out to God and ask why? And Jesus says, look, not even the Son of Man had a place to lay his head. We're aliens here. We're aliens here. What does that mean? Our location eternally is not in this world as it is today. It is in the new heavens and the new earth. And we certainly see this world as the place where God put us and to enjoy the gifts of God while we are here. And for the purposes of God, we disciple, but we don't put down roots here. Remember what the word says in Hebrews about Abraham. He was looking for a city which did not have foundations in this world. He was looking for another city, but he was certainly a blessed man. So some will be mightily blessed financially and some will be mightily blessed without very much money. You see, blessed without money, blessed with money. Then look at the last one. He says, let me come, but first let me do this, that, the other. Let me first bury my father. In other words, he comes and he wants this. May I follow you on my terms. And here's where I think we really get into trouble in the church. Not so much the first one. He wanted to follow Jesus by first putting his own business and his own needs on the same level as his discipleship. But I can't come and do this or I can't do that because of, and then we give a litany of what we're doing and how busy we are. One of the most concerning things that I see in the church is this. Young couples before they're married participating in the church and active and, and, you know, working and doing all of that. Then they get married. And then you begin to see a diminution, a diminishing of their activity in the church. And then they have children. And all of a sudden, we don't see them anymore. Well, I can't do this because of that, because of that. And what's happening is they are actually using the grace gifts of God as an excuse not to be participating in the work of God in the ministry. I don't have time for this. I'm too busy over here. As I said before, we are called into one business, and our business is to do what? We are to be about our Father's business. So let's be careful and let's listen to ourselves. And let's ask the Holy Spirit what to do. Does that mean that because you missed something or didn't come one time to church? I'm not saying Sunday school church. Uh, does that mean that, that you're, you're lackadaisical and you're idolatrous? No. But if something comes up, ask God the Spirit. One of my grandchildren the other day, I asked her, Emily, she's working. And I said, when are you leaving the job? You know, because she'll be graduating next weekend and so on. When are you giving your termination notice? She says, I don't know. I haven't figured it out yet. And I text her back because texting, you know, today is a communication where you can't talk to them about on the phone anymore. I said, ask God and perhaps he will tell you. She called back. She said, I'll do that. How easy it is to get embroiled in all the stuff of the world and to assume, to assume that these are reasons to keep us from the things of God. Amen? 
We have to be very, very careful about this. We don't want to be like that man. Let me go bury my father. And Jesus said, let the dead bury the dead. Interestingly, this man probably didn't have a father to bury, but he was, you know, giving an excuse not to follow, at least on Jesus' terms. But let the dead bury the dead. Let those who are spiritually dead bury the spiritually dead. I am the Lord of life. Come to me and walk in life and have your priorities totally and radically changed towards serving the God of life. Amen. Don't serve the things of this earth over and even in competition with serving the Lord of life. It is a difficulty to determine these things. And it is a battle in our lives of not to do it. Amen. It's not easy. But Jesus, following Jesus, is not only hard in the natural sense, but it is great reward, isn't it? Next week, we'll look at the next three miracles as Jesus' ability over Satan's ability in three categories.